IGN Playlist is a new home to your game library. Rate games, share lists, and log your game time powered by How Long to Beat. Sign up for early access today at playlist.ign.com. Listen! Hello, Super Nintendos. Welcome to another episode of Nintendo Voice Chat. I am your host, Cat Bailey, and this is episode 595 of our podcast. Joining me today are four guests. I have with me Parrish Schneider. Good. Thanks for having me. Also, Rebecca Valentine. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm a little concerned about Pear's banjo impression, but thank, mm, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm good job calling that out, Reb. And mm. finally, we have a special guest, Fan Bites Imran Khan. Welcome to the show. Hello. I was trying to think of a Kazooie sound, but I actually can't think of what Kazooie sounds like. <laughs> I'm no. glad I said that. I'm glad I teed that up there. Well, can done. we record that? Really that? Can we record that and get that on like a sound button or something? <laughs> Put it on the Pl- soundboard. Make it a drop. Look, when I like Seth that comes game. back, when Seth comes back, just play it like constantly and never tell him what's That's going right. on. That's right. That's right. Our pal Seth Macy is out this week, but he will be back very soon. Don't worry. In the meantime, we have a lot to cover. I have Reb and Imran on here because we're going to be talking about everything that the Microsoft's Activision Blizzard deal means for Nintendo. And yes, there are some implications. We're also going to be talking about Banjo-Kazooie being out on Nintendo Switch. We're going to be talking Nintendo numbers. And of course, there will be the cat take and the rundown and everything that you would expect from an episode of NBC. Before we get to that, though, Imran, you're our special guest. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? And how's 2022 treating you so far? I'm doing well. 2022 has been a lot of being inside and not going anywhere so far. But so far, like, it's been fine. I've been playing way too much Genshin Impact and Final Fantasy XIV to the point where I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm counting down the days until Elden Ring comes out so I can at least get myself off, like, the, the service game treadmill. A very non-Tendo 2022 for you so far, then. So far, yeah. I I went. I got back in Super Mario Maker because I remembered that I didn't. I was making an eight-world like course thing, and I got two worlds in and just sort of stopped because I ran out of ideas. So now I'm back into it and trying to build levels, and I'm realizing I don't have any more inspiration now than I did then. But it's. I also had a bunch of half-finished ideas. I'm now finishing, so hopefully it'll actually limp across the finish line at some point. Imran, you have appeared on Kind of Funny, and you're also the news editor over on Fanbyte. We brought you here on the show in part because it was a very news-filled week across the board. Even though Activision Blizzard's uh, acquisition or acquisition by Xbox was not technically a Nintendo deal, there are reverberations, shall we say, coursing through the industry right now, and Nintendo certainly is being affected by it. So I guess the first question that I'm going to Posed to the panel is having been acquired by Activision uh, by Xbox for seventy five billion dollars. Those are some Doctor Evil numbers. How do we expect this to impact games long term? Pair, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, obviously, imp- the impact on on games and on the on the classic. Microsoft versus Sony console war is, war is significant, right? Microsoft is expanding its portfolio of games that they own, publish, monetize in various ways, right? Like there's free-to-play Call of Duty, and then there is, you know, fit-for-game-pass Call of Duty. So there's obviously a big impact here in Microsoft's quest to become a subscription service. Now, 
The things we don't yet know is how far will this go? Microsoft would love to put their games on the Nintendo Switch and on the PlayStation and and have Game Pass built into every TV on the market and to monetize not through exclusively through direct sales of free-to-play, but also through the subscription network. Now, I think the impact on Nintendo in this Activision sale, obviously we can't call that yet because like, you know, even after Microsoft bought Rare, we still got some Rare games on Nintendo platforms. Back then, THQ published uh, Banjo on GBA, and we had Banjo and Smash Brothers. That they seem to be getting along pretty well. But from a kind of just from an impact that Activision is off the market as an independent giant publisher of top-selling games, I actually think the impact is really small on Nintendo, and that's because there hasn't been a Call of Duty game. The best-selling game. In the United States, a best-selling, you know, traditional packaged goods game, Call of Duty, there hasn't been one on a Nintendo platform since 2013. And the titles that have traditionally done really well on Nintendo platforms from Activision, Skylanders, Guitar Hero, these franchises are all dormant now. So direct impact, I'd say it's pretty, pretty small. Yeah, I think that the direct obvious impact on Nintendo is going to be pretty small, ultimately. However, I do think that there are kind of secondary impacts to Nintendo, right? For example, the way that the big games industry is doing business is changing. Reuters had a provocative headline and said that Sony is bringing a knife fight to a global gunfight that Xbox is part of. We are seeing the tech takeover, you could argue, of video games. There was a Resetera thread where somebody said, it's the year 2030 and Facebook and Google and Apple are the big players in the game space. Are How do you feel about this, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think that's going to be the case. Google has, in particular, shown itself to be pretty incompetent when it comes to it. But Xbox has been very specific in saying that they don't see Nintendo and Sony as a competitor. They see Google and they see Apple as competitors. And that tells you where the games industry is right now. It is no longer the kind of toy business that Nintendo jumped into back in the 1980s. It is a global tech concern, in my opinion. And long term, I think that will absolutely affect how Nintendo approaches the games industry. Reb, you're a business girl. You're a person who knows about this kind of things. What's your take on all of this? Yeah, I actually... I. I Consolidation at the level that we are seeing it is obviously a bad thing for many, many, many reasons. Uh, we don't want to see every single company get acquired by one, two, or three giants. That has horrible implications for everybody. But on just just like a games level, I actually wonder, to, to sort of dig into the Nintendo thing, I actually wonder if this might end up having a sort of positive impact for Activision Blizzard games on Nintendo. Because you're you're right with the assessment that most of the franchises that have ended up on Nintendo platforms from Activision Blizzard are kind of dormant now. But the thing that I wonder will come out of all this is there there's this whole like treasure box of Activision Activision mainly IP that has gone unused because Activision has pursued very aggressively this strategy in recent years of Call of Duty all Call of Duty all the time and now you know Microsoft has talked about and has done in the past situations where they have acquired a studio and then that studio's IP have been able to be used by another studio to make something yeah. and so i wonder if the like you know down the line 5 6 years down the line we see 
IP from Activision that we haven't seen in years get picked up either by Activision Blizzard again or by some other studio inside Microsoft and and made into something that ends up making it onto the Switch or whatever Nintendo console we're we're playing then. Uh, so that that is maybe like the slightly optimistic take uh, out of that. It's it's a really complicated situation because for many for for. For a lot of other reasons, too, because I think active, any acquisition is always going to be looked at with, oh, you know, Microsoft just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But Activision Blizzard, specifically as a company, was in a situation where they really kind of needed some sort of massive change at the top that they weren't getting just by standing around and being Activision Blizzard by themselves with a board and headed up by Bobby Kotick. So, yeah, I I wonder. There's a lot of question marks on this that I don't think we're going to get answers to until... 2023 and later but at least in terms of how the switch is concerned i i wonder if it ends up being a a plus for people who like playing nintendo games and like things that activision blizzard made like a decade ago yeah i looked at it's really interesting you said you know dormant franchises you know blizzard hasn't made a new starcraft game in ages one of my Mm -hmm. favorite franchises and it's a total bummer i would never see that go back to you know a switch and and we're we're seeing diablo being played here diablo on switch was awesome right these were really good ports but i feel like the tech uh, you know tech is moving on and like i do feel like the next diablo games are not going to be able to run on switch you know and like i the, the types of games that Activision and Blizzard have been making over the years moved away from the Lost Vikings and went more towards these kind of more um, resource-intensive games. But, hey, cloud gaming is the great equalizer, right? And I know a lot of our listeners don't love the idea of cloud games because it comes with all the, the stigma of, uh, you know, lag and, and and you don't own the game code or the, the, the box game. But at the same time, when connection speeds are so fast that it is no longer an issue you know, you'll probably let get all these Microsoft and Bethesda and Activision and Blizzard games on your Nintendo device if Nintendo lets them, right? If Nintendo sees itself as an open platform that you can stream to. I heard Kingdom Hearts Internet connection speeds on America's famously reliable internet infrastructure. Yeah. Someday. I heard Kingdom Hearts on Switch was through the cloud and that wasn't any good, but I haven't dug into that very hard. Yeah. Imran, I'm curious, as our special guest, what's your take? So I don't know if you ever read uh, Sadia Nadella's book, Kat, but like, there's a chapter in there where he talks about how Steve Ballmer got him on board with the subscription service, and like how that's the next step for Microsoft and like becoming the biggest company in the world, essentially. And I think that's kind of when you look at like him willing to write a check for seventy billion dollars for Activision Blizzard. Like you see that they really want to go big on like like Reb said, the treasure trove of IPs. Like having this big uh game pass uh like safe that they can crack open for any anyone that's willing to host their games. I think that's where they want to go in the future probably with Nintendo systems is what if we didn't give you a single piece of pre- package software? What if you opened it up to xCloud or something like that? I'm sure Nintendo is very hesitant about doing exactly that. But I, when we're talking about the next 10 years, like the Apple, Google, whatever, like that's what it's probably actually going to look like is the idea of xCloud and Game Pass and all that on other systems. Like Microsoft – I'm sorry, Activision was not – a huge supporter of Nintendo that like, was Crash and there was Spyro and those games did very well. But Blizzard was. There was a native version of Overwatch. There's, you know, the Diablo 2 port. There was Diablo 3 earlier in the Switch's lifestyle, our lifetime. It makes total sense that 
what Microsoft can do now is leverage the idea of, hey, we still we're going to give you the same support, but you got to give us a little something here, too. And that's, you know, access to 100 million systems that can get an Xbox account and a hopefully a Game Pass subscription. I'm actually really curious, you know, about um, about free to play games from Activ- Activision Blizzard and, and subscription based games, right? Obviously, WoW and Call of Duty, Warzone monetize so differently from from packaged goods, and Microsoft has shown that they aren't with Minecraft. They didn't really change much, right? Like they treated Minecraft as its own. I'm wondering if they will be splitting out certain experiences and keep on running them as multi platform plays, or if you know, obviously the end game is you need to be an Xbox subscriber to play a Call of Duty or, you know, play Elder Scrolls and all these big franchises. Um, but I wonder if they've taken a mixed approach there. Yes. Well, my, oh, sorry, Minecraft did make one big change, which was you needed an Xbox login. And that was, that's true. That's what yeah. Sony objected to completely for Minecraft until eventually they did relent. I can like just having that because Microsoft reports on MAUs like monthly activations. That's what they're going for, for like their investor calls and their big numbers. I imagine that is exactly what they want from like the war, our Call of Duty War Zone and all that in the future. Yeah, I think the bigger impact, Kat, you know, just to add one more topic onto onto this discussion, I think the bigger impact is that this was this was major cannon fire in the ears of you know our friends at Sony, and there is going to be a move, right? Like big acquisitions like these create this pressure um you know on on public companies to move equal in some way and there's no way to move equal there's no other studio of the size but there are a lot of japanese developers who would probably not sell to a western company who don't want to be in the uh, microsoft ecosystem but would sell to the likes of of uh, playstation and that could be bad news for nintendo because you know, without a Bandai Namco and without, you know, games from Capcom, without stuff like Monster Hunter um, really lighting up the charts in Japan on Switch, that could be uh, that could be an issue for Nintendo, I think. Yeah. Which is funny, though, because Jim Ryan has been pretty explicit in moving away from Japan in many ways and making Sony mm-hmm. far more global. Uh, if anything, S- Sony has been shunning Japan in a lot of ways. So to that extent, it would be a little surprising to me if they made a move to go and acquire a Capcom or a Bandai Namco. Yeah, well, that but those are the exclusive IP that, you know, certainly titles that sell in the West really well. Um, you know, think of uh, think of Square RPGs and all of that that are associated with the PlayStation brand. We got FF7 Remake on the, on the PlayStation exclusively. Um, I, I feel like there is there's a big one coming from the PlayStation camp, and Nintendo is not a company that acquires at that level. Uh, you know, the, I mean, they're a little bit more careful. They divested Rare, they sold Rare because it wasn't working for them, uh, and um, I, I just feel like the next big acquisition is going to be a Japanese company. Yeah, they bought Next Level Games, buy. but that that was because yeah. it made sense for them, and I they did not buy Monster Games, and now Monster Games is just not making like the same thing anymore i could they what nintendo does is they invest in technology way more than they invest in studios it's like we were talking about the streaming services before they they very quietly like bought a majority stake in a uh japanese streaming service which is why like we have all that cloud or switch cloud gaming things now i don't think they would ever like buy a capcom who like I want to say, seven years ago, their shareholders said, "Yeah, we're open to hearing bids," and since then they've recovered. But that also says how quickly all that stuff can change. Yeah, 
I've been yeah, next level drum for a. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Per. No, no. Next level games was an interesting one, right? That was Nintendo knew something that we didn't know at the time that next level games was getting so damn good that not having them working on Luigi's Mansion games would be would be terrible for Nintendo. Like we just mentioned, three is like Nintendo tier, like top tier level game development. Like they were smart to snatch them up at the time. It's outsold Ghost of Tsushima. Like it's a yeah. it's a massively selling game. Wonderful game. Yeah, and it's funny because Ghost of Tsushima is being treated as this mega hit, but Luigi's Mansion 3 in many ways has been flying under the radar a little bit outside of uh, outside of Nintendo fans. So yeah, if, if there are people though. listening to the show who still haven't played it, it's not like Luigi's Mansion 1. It's way, way better. I've been beating the drum for a little bit personally that Nintendo is diversifying in its own way and becoming a true transmedia company. So Xbox wants to compete with all of the tech concerns. Nintendo wants to compete with theme park developers, and they're turning their IP into movies and things like that. If anything, I sort of wonder if Xbox and Nintendo are just moving in different spaces at this point, where Sony, I mean, I guess Sony is trying to do consumer electronics still and they have their own thing going on. But it's interesting yeah. to see the different strategies that the different platform form holders are undertaking. And it's yeah. really, it's born out of Nintendo's history, right? Like they're, the pixel art and the characters are so emblematic and there was this whole retro fad which keeps on going. It doesn't seem to end, right? But there are more people who would put a question mark block on their t-shirt than an Xbox logo, right? So it's really smart that they're going going in this direction. Yeah, and Nintendo's been like this for a long time, I think. Maybe probably ever since the Wii, maybe before that too. They they're more experimental. They're not they're not sprinting to compete with PlayStation and Xbox to their detriment sometimes. I mean, the Wii U was a really sad thing for a lot of people, I think. Uh but but the Switch is fantastic and it, it's weird. It's fantastic in many ways, because it is weird. It is not trying to be this massive, powerful box that plays every single game. And Nintendo's been able to get away with this for so long, for exactly what, what Pear is saying. You know, it, more people want a question mark t-shirt than than anything else because they have Mario, they have, they have Pokemon, they have Donkey Kong, they have all of the big IP that they have that they will never, ever let anyone else touch. And as long as they have that, and as long as they retain the popularity of those first party things, I mean, I think it would be a huge blow. You're right if they lost Monster Hunter or Capcom or something like that. But it's so it wouldn't destroy Nintendo. It wouldn't destroy what Nintendo's trying to do. And yep. they so they can they can kind of conveniently ignore all of this stuff uh, in, in it, some ways. It, it it will impact them in some small ways. But Nintendo is just going to keep on chugging along and doing the things that it does very well, or sometimes very poorly, depending on what tech they're making. <laughs> I think it's funny they've been criticized for being so reliant on their own on their own properties, right? But so if you look if you look back and you look at the Wii and the Wii U and then the Switch library at the top fifty selling games, publisher is Nintendo, 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 right? So they're very fortified against this sort of stuff. If you look at the top selling game on PS4 and PS5 in the last year, it's Call of Duty Vanguard, right? Yeah. And and that I mean that's a lot of dough that that. PlayStation got through third-party revenue right there that's gone, potentially gone, right? Yeah. I think I, the difference between Nintendo and, like, a even with Xbox is that Nintendo doesn't just have IPs. They have characters, recognizable characters like Link and Mario and Pikachu and, you know, mascots, right? 
And yeah, Xbox has Master Chief and that kind of thing. But so many of the IPs that they got out of Activision Blizzard, it's like Call of Duty. Okay, who is the first person that you think of when you think of Call of Duty? I, I guess a uh, skull mask guy, Terry guy. <laughs> yeah, I always think of Ghost, <laughs> Christopher Maloney. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Nintendo has been able to make a lot of hay out of that. But yeah, one of the yeah. questions I wanted to ask. Um, before we moved on was, I feel obligated to ask this, even though I kind of feel like I already know the answer. Microsoft wanted to buy Nintendo 20 years ago. Is there a scenario where that could actually happen? No. No, there's no No. way. I mean, mean, the famous story is that the Nintendo representatives laughed at the idea. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's no longer a family business, but it's run like a family business. And their Nintendo is doing all sorts of stuff, but at the core is still this kind of like toy maker business. Um, could they be working with a Microsoft to do a little handheld game and watch on, you know, one of Microsoft's acquired franchises? Sure. But like outright sell to them. I, I don't see it. I feel like the question is, is there, are there enough shares for Microsoft to buy to make that possible? And the answer is no, they'd have to buy directly from people who have a vested interest in a very successful and long running Nintendo who wouldn't probably sell to Microsoft, wouldn't sell to a Western company, but also wouldn't just sell to Microsoft. I don't think there is a an avenue in which that is possible unless we look at like successive Wii U-style failures. And that that's exactly why you have Furukawa diversifying yeah. the way he is with the, the movies and the theme parks and all that jazz. So even if they do suffer those game failures, they're not like, they're not at the beck and call of any other company. Yeah, I do think... Exactly. I do think uh, acquisition, absolutely not. Um, I do think there is a chance. There were rumors a couple of years ago that turned out to not be anything that Microsoft was going to put Game Pass on Switch. And that didn't pan out. We got Ori and Cuphead, I think, but we didn't really get much else. I do think there's a future where that does happen, especially if things keep trending the way they're trending with, with Microsoft growing Game Pass into this behemoth that can't be ignored. And Nintendo continuing to make things that are not necessarily ideal for big mainstream games. I think there's a world where we get like a modified mm-hmm. version of game, especially once that cloud, like you were saying, Parrot, once a uh, cloud is really, really stable and working well for everything through xCloud. Uh, I think there's a world where either on the Switch or on a future Nintendo console, we have an Xbox Game Pass app where we can just access all these games through cloud play that wouldn't be available on Nintendo otherwise. And then Nintendo gets to keep putting all of its first party stuff and whatever else it wants to do on there. I don't know that that's, I don't know that I'm 1,000% confident that's going to come true, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. That's Xbox's dream, isn't it? Imran, do you think that there will be an Xbox Game Pass app at some point on Nintendo Switch? I would bet they've already talked about it. I I imagine it's probably the same thing that's hypothetically still going on with Netflix of Nintendo says you need to give us a cut and the other company says no. So I imagine that is the, going to be the the long-term disagreement over all that stuff. I I think at some point maybe somebody will relent or maybe Switch gets a browser one day and we just get <laughs> we log on to xbox.com slash whatever play or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean we've seen stuff like EA play get integrated on Microsoft's platform, right? And you know, obviously obviously Ubisoft's been playing with with cloud gaming and having their little subscription system, but we have really haven't heard much from Nintendo's camp on that sort of approach. I mean, for one, it's there are not as many games that would apply and be easily integrated unless it was cloud, so for like download services. 
But um, Nintendo has instead gone to its old partners and integrated classic games into their own subscription, right? So, or characters from their partners into their own games like Smash Brothers. Um, I, I feel like the logical conclusion is that eventually, be, if, if Nintendo keeps going with a unique device like the Nintendo Switch, um, I think the logical conclusion is that they'll open it up to subscription services from other companies. But first, they want to build their own. Yeah, Microsoft is trying to build an ecosystem, and they have been cultivating a strong relationship with Nintendo in recent years, which is why we had all those persistent rumors about Master Chief appearing in Super Smash Brothers, for example. (laughs) So I think that this is only going to revive those rumors. I don't see it happening Mm -hmm. anytime soon, but call me in a couple of years. But if you want to hear more conversation about the big Activision Blizzard deal, I encourage you to check out podcast unlocked where i was a guest and i was talking to ryan miranda and destin about the acquisition we also talked about the lawsuits and labor issues which was not something that we were able to quite get to in this particular segment but it's time to move on now let's talk about some nintendo numbers we got a lot of numbers from 2021 and you know we were kind of talking a little bit about whether or not nintendo had a strong library in 2021. Well, they sure did have a very successful 2021. Regardless, Nintendo Switch was the best-selling console of 2021, both in terms of unit sales and dollar sales. Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl were the third best-selling games in December and fourth best-selling games the entire year in the U.S., in addition to being the best-selling games on the Switch overall. Between Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl and New Pokemon Snap, physical sales were the best they've been for the series since 2000. So main takeaway, Pokemon's doing all right, aren't they, Imran? Yeah, there's probably nothing anyone can, like, (laughs) there's no way Game Freak can mess up enough for Pokemon to not do well, (laughs) I feel like. And I I think that's, you know, it's a testament to how strong that IP is, and it's the strong, probably the largest IP, I think, by numbers in the world at this point i don't think there's going to be like much change there's no that boat is too big to move but also it's too like financially risky to ever really move that boat in a way that i think some number of pokemon fans are very vocal about i also think it's so remarkable like if you think about the game being the third um best-selling game uh they're competing with games that are on four platforms like you know, yeah. some of the, the games ahead of them are sold across PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, Series X, right? Like, and, and Switch in some cases. So um, that's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I would also add to that, too. These are NPD numbers. And the weird thing about Nintendo with NPD is uh, they can only get physical sales. from they, they get physical and digital for most of the other companies that the NPD reports on, but Nintendo's are only physical. So the actual likelihood is that some of those numbers were even higher uh, when you count digital sales, but we they just don't have the numbers uh, yeah. to track. Because yep. it's all their Nintendo's eShop and Nintendo doesn't want to report those to anybody. So Until it's in, the quarter, yeah. Right, so it's entirely possible that that was like actually much higher uh, that Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl were even higher. The The comparison with the best since 2000 is also a little bit tricky because in 2000, that was the year that Pokemon Gold and Silver came out in the US. And that there were only physical sales then. There were no digital sales of Pokemon Gold and Silver when they first came out. So technically... 
Pokemon has been having better years than 2000, probably for a long time now when you incorporate digital sales. But the fact that physical sales alone of Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, two remakes that... Yeah, I know. That, they remakes, that people too. Had, <laughs> that people had questions about, honestly. I mean, I really liked I really liked them, but but people... It, it's, it's not a big... It's not a big, like, tentpole, like, sword and shield release. It's not like that. And I, technically that... The sales comparison they're making also included new Pokemon Snap, like basically any and any other Pokemon sales they did that year. But the fact that Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl were were able to sort of carry that for them last year, I, I think is a testament to what Imran's saying. Yeah, there's really if it says Pokemon on it, it's gonna sell. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I still remember when the first Pokemon games came out in the West and exploded. There was there were a lot of calls of this is a fad. <laughs> um, you know, people are going to tire of it, and it's just, it just—it seems to be uh, not not a fad. No, hmm. <laughs> no, confirmed. Pokemon is not a fad. <laughs> <laughs> Nuts! I mean, it's 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 quite remarkable how like the, the, this games didn't look like this. Games didn't like Pokemon was so unique when it came out in the West because the market was dominated by very different games, and now it's just this kind of rock. It's this mainstay that will perform. Anytime there's a new game. Yeah, I do wonder what this year is going to look like for Pokemon um, because they have Legends Arceus coming out at a time that it, it's a very different Pokemon game than what we've seen before looks like. And it also is coming out in January, question uh, mark, not the holiday season. So do they have something else Pokemon planned for later in the year? Uh Surely Coliseum, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Or do they just make a big push with, like, is Arceus a game that gets DLC? Because I, I, the Sword and Shield DLC, I understand, did pretty well for them. I could see and, it. I could yep. see yeah, an expansion pack, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. so I don't know. I wonder I wonder what this year will be like for Pokemon. We really don't have any further information because they're so busy on the marketing beat for Arceus. But yeah, I don't know. This I don't think this is going to be a turning point in the Pokemon franchise in that regard, but I, I am curious. And they've got so many options. They could go another Let's Go. They like the black and white remake remake is probably inevitable. Like they could just go straight to Gen 9 next. Like it is a they they have so many ways to just make Pokemon bigger and bigger and amplify it on top of itself. Yeah. Well, my popular opinion is that Game Freak should take a break and make more pocket card jockey, but <laughs> Oh yeah, pair. Yeah, right. All right. So there good. we go. So Let's good. this is now a pocket card jockey podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but for real pair, I mean, uh, pocket card jockey aside, I would love for Game Freak to take a break. They they churn out a game or a big piece of content pretty much every year, and I think I said this in my Diamond and Pearl uh remake review but i i would love it if they would just hand off the pokemon ip to studios like ilka you know every couple years or so and take a break or take take more time to make something like really big and ridiculous which i think they is can't what... take a break they've got a media empire to maintain yeah. i know but i wish i i love the idea of letting new studios tackle the pokemon ip in interesting ways i think we talked about on this podcast too like remember pokemon conquest that was really good did mm. game Freak make that i don't even remember who did that but that was going back yeah, Nobunaga's let, ambition by way of Pokemon. So that's weird. right. Let Koei Tecmo uh-huh. do something. Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> Sounds great. Yep. I would po- love for Pokemon to take a break, a la Assassin's Creed, a couple years ago, where they can actually get some time to really develop the idea. Because I don't think Gen 9 is going to be happening this year. I think that no. they're going to take another year, especially with the pandemic happening and all these other projects swirling around to 
properly get it right. But I, I kind of agree with you, Rev. I, I would love for Game Freak to A, scale up more to kind of match the requirements that are being put on them because they're still a relatively small studio. Yeah. And B, take a breather and really make a banger of a game in terms of Pokemon. I I liked Pokemon Sword Shield myself, but I, I think there were some legitimate criticisms to be had in the uh, the connected world being a little half-baked in mm. many ways. So yeah. They, they uh, could really benefit from a Call of Duty-style structure, mm. which is like... Game Freak does it like Gen 9, whatever, then Ilka does the next year, then Bandai Namco has the year after that. For not for a mainline game, but for like a Pokemon thing. And then they come back for three years later with the next gen. Yeah. I agree. Well, we're here are some other top sellers for Nintendo in 2021. Mario Kart 8, still hanging in there <laughs> at number seven. Super Mario 3D World at number 10, Animal Crossing, New Horizons at number 14, and Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Number 17, there was a, a notable absence from the top 20, and it breaks my heart a little bit. Metroid Dread did not mm. ca- crack the top 20 sales for 2021. I mean, it sounds like, by all accounts, Metroid Dread exceeded expectations. It was a success in terms of sales, but it kind of drives home that Metroid, for whatever reason, just does not sell. Or it is a, it a cult favorite, I want to say. Yes. Yeah. It sold way better than it ever has. Like, this is yeah. by far the best-selling Metro game. I'm pretty sure it probably broke a million at this point. Like, yeah. th- I think that's going to be the enduring legacy of Switch sales is not the mega sellers like Animal Crossing and Pokemon and all in Mario Kart 8. It's going to be the fact that things that were once very, very niche get a big bump from the Switch. Like, uh, Metroid is an example. This is the best-selling Metroid game. Shin Megami Tensei Five also has, by this point, become the best-selling Shin Megami Tensei game. It's these small things that... Enough people own a Switch and enough people are excited by every like game du jour, game of the month, whatever. And they they do happen to pick it up for $60, just generally more than they've ever been before. That I think a Switch bump is a one, a verifiable, observable phenomenon. And also something that when you're when you are Nintendo and making the pitch to third parties of why a game should come to Switch, this is a good way to show them why. It is wild to me. And I understand why, but it's still wild to me that a frankly half-baked remake of Pokemon Diamond and Pearl (laughs) was able to be the best-selling Nintendo Switch game of 2021 and (laughs) so much further above than Metroid Dread. It was half-baked. It was a Unity. It was developed in the Unity engine. It was outsourced. And mm-hmm. if it was very buggy. Why does that make it half-baked? You just said you wanted them to do more outsourcing. <laughs> Did I say that I wanted them to do more outsourcing? I think that was a Rev and Imran take. You, ag- you were upset, <laughs> yeah, you agreed. I, should- I think it's half-baked, but not because it's outsourced, because it, like that was yeah. a game that needed to come out when it came out and not any later, because Arceus is in the way. Dude, I they, liked like- it. I thought it was a good, faithful remake. Watch my review. <laughs> <laughs> but can we but can we agree that the kind of like the effort level doesn't seem to be it's it's not think of think about remakes on the market and like what Capcom does with a Resident Evil or Square does with a Final Fantasy or you know arguably what we've seen even with with Metroid remakes it seems like a little bit more work is put in than what we get out All of the Pokemon right. franchise right. All right. right now look now listen yeah. here you uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I think that there is a desire for what Pokemon used to be, even if it's not super quantifiable. And at least some of that desire is this top-down 
turn-based, simple RPG that people really, really liked and continued to like for a very long time, like into into basically Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, effectively, until it jumped to the Switch. And I, mm-hmm. I think Sword and Shield especially showcased what we sort of lost when we moved away from that format. And I... I mean, I don't think that, I, I think it definitely just sold that many because Pokemon, the name Pokemon was attached to it. But I, I do think that, and this is one of the reasons I really loved it because it was part, it, the remake specifically embraced that element of Pokemon, this like simpler, top down, straightforward, no, no Z moves, no mega evolution, none of this other nonsense, just turn-based RPG. It was, and it was solid and Diamond and Pearl were good games to begin with. And it just remade them, made them look a little nicer and a little more colorful on a switch. And frankly, that was pretty good. It is okay, for, well, for better or worse. The, the new Super Mario brothers of Pokemon of like, we're, okay. go, we're going Fine. back this old thing. We're making it look real simple. Maybe intentionally, maybe not. Who knows? And yeah. like, it then sold really, really well and created its own like niche audience, Fine. not niche, but its own subset. Yeah, you're not fine. Wrong, all, all, all we're saying is that Metroid Dread deserves better. Yes, because it's a better mm-hmm. game, mm-hmm. and it was more. It, it was very. It's very faithful to the classic 2D Metroids. Turn um, turn based RPGs are more accessible to a much much wider audience for sure than yeah. than the scary noise that the little robots <laughs> made. Every time I woke up in the morning and was upstairs washing my face, I hear Imran playing and the the Emmy noise is playing and freaking me out. You know that's a really too. Metroid's great. I'm not trying to wreck. You're you're not. You know that's a really interesting point, Rev, because the conventional wisdom is that turn-based RPGs are outdated or old or that kind of thing, and that everybody wants to go real time. So, but you might not be wrong. A turn-based kind of setup might be less intimidating overall. And that might be kind of the secret to why Pokemon has been able to continue to be relevant over the past 20 years. That and the fact that, you know, it has some of the most identifiable characters in media today, but whatever. Yeah, well, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl made a bunch of most accessible games of 2021 lists, not because Nintendo or Ilka or Game Freak or Pokemon Company or anybody sits down and thinks about accessibility really, really hard, uh, which we saw with Let's Go. They did not do this, but because it's just a turn-based RPG, you can basically just play it with one hand, hitting one button at a time. There's no, there's no reflex. There's no you. I don't. You need you need like some mental skill to be able to play it, but you don't. You don't need any particular physical skill to play it, and that's why kit little kids can eventually get through a Pokemon game just as easy easily as an adult who wants that more in-depth post-game battle kind of stuff that they dig into. I think like one one thing about Pokemon that's underrated in terms of like mass appeal is that everyone's journey is going to be different. You you and your friends are not going to have the same team. You're not going to battle the same ways. You're going to like have uh cultivate not called like curated versions of your own journey which allows you to talk about them take pictures on the internet tell tell your friends which is not something that you can easily do with say mario or metroid dread that said i think metroid prime 4 is going to sell pretty well probably outsell dread tanley and how many parents bought a copy and then bought a copy for their kids and so in effect (laughs) Mm -hmm. they were double dipping yeah 
And for Nintendo, probably it means they need multiple switches in the house yeah. for all their kids because nobody yeah. wants to share. They got a hell so, of a racket going on yeah, here. No, Seriously. I'm curious, I'm curious if Arceus like sells notably less because of that. Like we'll never know why mm. exactly if, mm. if it does sell less. I think we'll probably sell more. But if it does not have that that double dip number, then th- I bet you the next Pokemon Legends is going to be like Pokemon Legends Arceus or Dialga and Palkia. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. It'll be really interesting to see if Nintendo is able to keep up the momentum in 2022. I said in uh, the beginning of the year that it was my opinion that this was going to be the absolute peak, and not the least because, in effect, Nintendo is running back 2017 with games like Breath of the Wild 2 and Splatoon 3. But I think there are real questions about whether Nintendo Switch can once again be the top-selling console of 2022. I thought it got a big boost from Switch OLED and the fact that the Xbox Series X and the PS5 were so hard to find, but uh, things might change a lot in 2022, not the least because Starfield is coming out on Xbox, among other things. So something to watch, but something else we got to discuss. Hey, we got a new Nintendo Switch Online expansion pack game. And it's Banjo-Kazooie. And I think this game kind of resonates a lot in the hearts of Nintendo fans because Banjo-Kazooie, of course, is one of Rare's most famous games. It came from the peak, arguably, of the Rare-Nintendo relationship. In that way, it's not unlike, say, a Super Mario RPG from the days when Square and Nintendo were best of friends. And, of course, Microsoft went and bought Rare, continuing the theme of acquisitions, in this episode, and Banjo-Kazooie went away for a very long time until finally returning for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, and now Nintendo Switch Online Expansion Pack. And it's coming out today. It's not out yet. Pear, you reviewed. I just checked. Is it out? <laughs> no, I just checked. It's still not out. Okay. Well, maybe it'll be out by the time this episode goes live. But Pear, you, you reviewed Banjo-Kazooie mm. back in the day for IGN.com. <laughs> So I'm quite curious, what's your perspective on it in the year of our Lord 2022? Yeah, obviously it's one of the greatest games of the 18th century, so it's been a while. No, it's, um, first of all, just to start off, um, I, I think it's really funny when we think about controversies in video gaming, everybody will point to something like the Wind Waker reveal and people being ups, upset over, you know, Baby Link and the cel-shaded uh, uh, look. Banjo-Kazooie was actually a controversial announcement because the game had been rumored um, and and kind of leaked for a while as uh, Project Dream. Mm. So it was actually called uh, Dreamland of Giants. It was an isometric game that Rare was working on even you know before the N64 was out and so we, we kept on hearing about this amazing project dream and in our minds you know at the time we're we're thinking of like crazy wild ideas from from uh, rare who obviously were established and and a, a quality game maker after goldeneye and all that and then it got announced at banjo kazooie and even though there was no social media back then Everybody complained. They just complained to us. We got thousands and thousands of emails with people being upset over the baby name Banjo-Kazooie, and this is now ruined, and they'll forever not play it. And then, obviously, it came out. It was beautiful, and it's funny, and it's well-designed, and it really showed that a a non-Nintendo development studio could make a game of the quality of Super Mario 64, and people would love it and remember it. 
And then, yeah, I, re I reviewed it back in, in 1998 when it came out and I gave it a high nine score uh, back when we had the decimal point scores. I just, it, it's just such a, from a technical perspective, it was really remarkable because um, it used over uh, texture blending. So instead of the kind of flat look, it actually had multiple textures layered on top of each other. And like they faked lighting through texture work in, in ways that really developers weren't doing at the time. But it also, it also just was just genuinely funny. The animal noises, the the rhymes of Gruntilda the witch were really well written. Stupid stuff like being able to turn into a washing machine. I just was a gorgeous, like big open level um, a game. And I, I think it's a much better game than Banjo-Tooie even to date. Mm. Where do you fall on the Mario 64 or Banjo-Kazooie debate? Because there have been plenty of people who are like, Banjo-Kazooie is a better game than Mario 64. I mean, more people have played Mario 64 over the years. It's a staple of speedrunning and such. But you could argue that Banjo-Kazooie is certainly more sophisticated. Uh, what's your What's so, your take, Pear? It's a tough one, because I think in my review, I wrote that it is the best 3D platformer of all time, surpassing Mario 64. But, you know, over the years, you kind of you go back and you play these games. It's really tough for me to make that call. Super Mario 64 just succeeds in having these really kind of compact small worlds where platforming is really the star. Banjo-Kazooie isn't as much about like the accuracy of jumping. It is much more of an exploration and kind of more mission-based game. Um, but, you know, Ban Banjo does more, has more variety, certainly looks a hell out of uh, just much, much better. And then the music is just fantastic. Like audio design, visuals all come together. So I can see both arguments. Super Mario 64 feels, feels more inventive and compact for its time. And then Banjo-Kazooie just surpassed it on, on, on scope, honestly. Reb, did you play Banjo-Kazooie when it first came out? I was seven, no. Uh, <laughs> well, you didn't play video games at seven? I Not really, actually. Oh. Uh, not until I was like nine or 10, when I got my first Game Boy Color, did I actually start playing video games. Um, I did, however, at around that age, well, a few years older than that, occasionally go to my next door neighbor's house to play Donkey Kong 64, which I've, I have been known on this podcast as a Donkey Kong 64 stan. Uh, I've played the first hour of Banjo-Kazooie because I believe it's on Game Pass or something. And mm -hmm. I really it's on like- It's retro replay. That's it. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, and I, I really like it. I think, I think I like it because it reminds me of playing Donkey Kong 64. <laughs> is <laughs> mostly why uh, it, it just evokes a very particular memory. But I, I think at some point, may, maybe now that it's on Nintendo Switch Online, maybe for some other reason, I think I would like to revisit it. It looks like fun. The atmosphere is so cool. Like there's, you know, there's a level, obviously, there's one with a giant mechanical whale shark thing. Yeah. And it's just the, the way it looks, there's a there's a scary level where you're butt stomping a piano, like an <laughs> organ and stuff. It's just it's so creative and it has, um, it's just, it goes beyond that whimsical atmosphere of Mario to do something that's a little bit, feels like Pirates of the Caribbean sometimes and sometimes like Haunted Mansion. It's very, it's like Disney Mario 64. Good era for Rare. <laughs> Smash Brothers Ultimate turned me around a bit on Banjo-Kazooie because I had always been like, ah, Banjo-Kazooie, they're, they're so lame. I, because when it first came out, I looked at it and I saw it much like Diddy Kong Racing as an off-brand version of a Nintendo game. And I know that's, that's a controversial statement because mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons, but that's how I felt at the time. This is what Teenage Cat was thinking. <laughs> now, as for the modern... So I, I think that bias kind of carried with me until I played 
Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. And I was like, wow, Banjo-Kazooie, they're such fun, well-realized characters. I think they're the most enjoyable of all of the DLC characters uh, to come out. And that made me think about Banjo-Kazooie, and I think in a much more positive light, ultimately. Imran, did you ever play Banjo-Kazooie? And what's your take on the series? I did. I So when I played it originally, this is like baby Imran game design brain. <laughs> uh, the thing that got me was when you play Mario 64, the stars are like objective markers. They could be check marks. They could be coins. They could be whatever. But they, they basically say, you did this thing. You threw King Babam three times. You found 100 coins. You did all this stuff. In Banjo-Kazooie, what got me was that they weren't objective markers anymore. They were you found this in the area. This is like, there are six of these, these jiggies, these notes, whatever. And like, that is what that game was based around is the idea of like, you found this versus you did this thing. And that wasn't what I wanted back then. When I replayed it on Rare Replay, which as far as I know, is probably the definitive version at this point, like even counting Switch Online. But when I replayed it on Rare Replay, I liked it a lot more. I was warned to stay away from Banjo-Tooie because whatever I liked about Banjo-Kazooie uh, would make me dislike Tooie, so I've not played that one yet. But I I have come around like you, Kat, in recent years and been like, yeah, this game's all right. It's yeah. like it, That's exactly it. It is an exploration-based game, so you discover something, right? Like you'll... In, in Mario, you pick a mission. There, there are some stars you can get where you weren't planning on getting them, right. obviously, like the red coins or something. But like in Banjo, it's like, here's a smaller open world and you're let loose and you discover something. Like you shoot an egg into a pot and like a voice goes, thank you. And you're like, well, what does that mean, <laughs> right? And so then then you play around with the game systems you need to discover all this fun stuff. So it is much more sandboxy. And then Tui basically goes even bigger it makes the world really big and i think they lost a little bit of their focus there it's still really good i wouldn't say stay away from it but <laughs> kazooie is a better game mm. if you're banjo watching the video they're showing the smash reveal of banjo and kazooie and i'm just so remember, good. I'm remembering I, how I incredible know. it's that the best one was. it's the best so one good. yeah the running gag it, from revealing k rule and then it's oh, yeah. really good but but i love cat i love your take on it because even at the time when these games were coming out it felt like Rare was just trying to be Nintendo. Like they made a game and so it was like, it's Mario mixed with Zelda. And it was never, this is a rare game, like GoldenEye again, right? Like Dinosaur Planet, whatever, Star Fox Adventures was like, it's Star Fox, but Zelda, right? Like it it all felt very derivative and you had to just kind of take a step back and go, well, this is a Nintendo studio now. And that's what, you know, that's what they should be doing as part of the portfolio. But Rare was always best when it when it invented something, when it wasn't trying to do Mario Kart. Like Disney, the, the Mickey Speedway game is just, it's kind of like a, a symbol of the downfall of this amazing developer. And not to say that they can't, you know, return to greatness. They're making some cool stuff. Um, you know, P- Viva Pinata was really, really clever, I thought. Um, but yeah, I, I like them best when they're not trying to be Nintendo. I was always a Battletoad stand, but... Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo number four on our list of the top 25 N64 games. You should go check that out. It should be out on Nintendo Switch Online Expansion Pack later today. All right. It's time now for the Invincibility Star. We're going to do a really quick news rundown and run through a bunch of news stories like Turtle Shells and Super Mario Brothers. First up, GDQ wrapped up last week really quick. Did you all have a favorite run? Reb. 
Oh, mine's probably the same as Imran's, but the Sekiro blindfolded run was sick. Whoa. <laughs> how? How? I don't even know. Pear just ran away the second that we talked about GDQ. He's speed running out of here. <laughs> Imran, how about you? Uh, yeah, it was a Sekiro run. I've actually got an interview with that guy publishing later today. Nice. So if anyone's curious about that. Sorry, I had to step away because my dog had to take a run. <laughs> it's okay, my my cat just pulled my webcam down. <laughs> <laughs> this is How why I closed the door. Pear, did you have a favorite GDQ run? I actually didn't get to watch it yet. Uh, I, have to, I have to catch up. Um, I was I was I was busy with IGN stuff. Aren't we all? Yeah, not me. Pokemon Legends Arceus <laughs> has leaked. They're already out there. This is a very common occurrence for Pokemon. So just want to warn you all, be careful of spoilers because there's a lot out there already. Kingdom Hearts Cloud Collection on Switch is coming out in February. It can be purchased individually or as a bundle for $89.99, which is, (laughs) that's a price. And I'm going to level with you. I know there are plenty of people who only roll with the Nintendo Switch. I don't think the cloud version of Kingdom Hearts is the way to experience the series. It's out on a lot of platforms at this point. Maybe maybe get one of those. This yeah. is the thing that turned me off with the Stadia model, right? Like a cloud gaming to me, when it's a subscription service, I kind of get it and I don't feel like I'm missing out on something. But when I'm paying 90 bucks and the, the cloud service on, on Switch is not great, right? What, right? what happens when, what happens in three years? Right? Like, will they still be a cloud service and my purchase will still be still apply? Or is it like, whoops, sorry, you gave us 90 bucks and it's no longer accessible. You can no longer play it. I, the I latter. That is, yeah, I think that, look, that is the big issue, right? Like, I I was looking at some old games the other day and like on the Nintendo Satellaview service in Japan, there was, there was a Super Famicom Wars. There was a Super NES version of Advance Wars. Yeah. And it's gone. It's gone. You the, can never play it again. You can never see it again. The Japanese it's, version of Super Punch-Out was only available through 7-Eleven and like a download cart, which is yeah. you will never find again. I hate that. Well, this just goes to the physical versus digital debate. And you know what? I'm a physical gal all the way. But <laughs> speaking of cloud versions, Dying Light 2 delayed to at least August. So that's another delay that's happening. And I, I don't know, like Dying Light 2 has been push, being pushed really hard. It's remarkable how little hype there is around this game. And God knows if you're going to play Dying Light 2, I don't think you're going to be playing it on, on Nintendo Switch. But we'll see if it ends up being good once the cloud version's out. And finally, uh, something I want to highlight. Uh, well, there hasn't been a Nintendo Direct this month. And mm. it's a little surprising. Or, or I should ask, Imran, are you surprised that there's been no Nintendo Direct? No, because once they once they got the Kirby did out there, it was like, okay, this month is just about Arceus then. Like, so I think maybe we'll get one. We'll definitely get one this quarter because they've just got nothing past Kirby. They've got really nothing dated. But beyond that, I there was that time that one year where they just did not do directs for most of the year, and we're only doing Twitter drops. It's not impossible Nintendo does that again, but I I would be shocked if they don't have some kind of direct saying, okay, here's our updates, here's here's let's keep you tied up until E3 time or whenever the next big showcase direct is. At the very least in February, because then once Arceus is kind of out of the way and they can do a Nintendo direct that maybe focuses a bit on Kirby, 
and you know the digital releases and such that are coming out in the coming months. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, Metroid Dread got announced and released in the same year, right? There's no mm-hmm. nothing to indicate that Nintendo would suddenly change and that the games that we think are coming, Bayonetta, Zelda 2, all that would be it. I, I do think that there's going to be a, a Q1 direct or with, with a major announcement. They always have at least one thing that they uh, announce and end up releasing the same year. Wasn't Xenoblade Chronicles announced and then released pretty much the same year? Yeah. That's right. Look, yep. there there are people online who make their entire brands out of predicting Nintendo Directs. Uh, <laughs> there is no, you cannot predict Nintendo Directs. Nintendo has, there's no pattern. There are no rules. Uh, when Nintendo feels like having a Direct, my my imagining is that some sometimes uh, Mr. Furukawa just wakes up in the morning and says, let's do a Nintendo <laughs> Direct tomorrow, send the tweet. <laughs> And then throws the trailers together, and then it just appears. That that's my imagining for how this happens. So you know, just just vibe, folks. Nintendo will announce some stuff whenever they feel like it, and there's nothing we can do about it. I don't know if you ever I, talked I, to developers that are in directs, but they also will like, yeah, Nintendo asked us for stuff four months ago, and we've not, we have no idea when the direct is. So like, even most even people involved don't know when the direct yeah. is. All the time, and then your your game, you think your game is in it, and then it gets kicked out, and they're like, "What? Oh, we weren't included in the direct after all!" Like, it definitely is. It definitely seems like it's a little bit all over the place. But maybe there's order to the chaos. Maybe whenever the Nintendo stock drive price goes slightly <laughs> down, they go, boop, boop, "Release the hounds!" and all the games come out. <laughs> all right, it is time now for the cat take, the segment in which I rant a bit about a industry subject that is of interest to me. And since the theme of this episode is acquisitions, this is my cat take, acquisitions are bad. And I don't think that this is a super controversial take, but if I had my way, zombie Teddy Roosevelt would be coming through and busting all of those trusts, (laughs) Not, not just Xbox, but Sony and Nintendo and many other companies. I do not like seeing the consolidation of the video game industry because it has the effect of consolidating all of the power into the hands of a very few. Newly minted Microsoft game CEO, Phil Spencer, has an outsized influence in the video game industry. And yeah, he may wield that power for good in the short term, but more and more we are at the whims of whatever the heck Microsoft wants to do. And I don't particularly like that. Competition, a free market. These are all things that theoretically capitalists want to have. Well, let's have it. Consolidation is bad. That's my cat take. Good take. I think it's a. I think it's a good take. I think there there are there are acquisitions. There are lots of acquisitions that didn't work out. I mean, like I mentioned, Guitar Guitar Hero earlier. Look at what happened. Look at what happened to that franchise. Look at what happened to Neversoft, who dazzled us with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, right? Like lots of stuff happens over time. But there are the occasional positive stories where a game studio that might not make it on its own gets acquired and then its IP lives on forever, right? Like some of Nintendo's second parties might not be around today and we might not have games like Fire Emblem or even Kirby if there hadn't been an acquisition uh, of a studio like that. But there are lots of stories where major corporations buy something and then are unable to do something with it. You know, yeah. Toys for, how many classic toys for fran- Bob. Look at that. How many classic Talented. franchises have died because they were gobbled up by, for example, EA? 
I mean, yeah. think about the death of, for example, Ultima, Wing Commander. You just go through the line. And I, I, I'm not saying that that's going to happen with Xbox's acquisitions, but even even if Call of Duty is bigger than ever, even if Activision Blizzard's, even if they manage to fix the problems at Blizzard and Diablo and World of Warcraft and Overwatch are doing well, that is still too much power in the hands of one particular platform holder. Yeah, I, I think like you can't really let Activision operate the way it's been operating either. Like, Absolutely this, not. This is one no. of those cases where the house either needed to burn down or be sold to someone else. And I, I agree with you. The consolidation is just an absolutely a, – a, an overall negative. But like if there is a, a single virtue of this, it's – Activision was unsustainable in so many ways, even from a software development perspective, something needed to happen. Yeah. And like my, for me, if I get a new Warcraft or a Starcraft, not World of Warcraft, but proper RTS Warcraft out of it, I'm totally fine. And I do, I have seen Microsoft. Bring back Starcraft. You know, I've seen Microsoft invest in franchises that might not have been the biggest sellers, like, a, you, you know, like even Halo Wars, we got a sequel, right? And, um, so I'm hoping that maybe there's a little bit of attention levered to some of the franchises that are sitting in the Activision Blizzard park or forgotten dreams like Lost Vikings and all of that. Yeah, but I think it also is a symbol of what is sort of ailing the industry, which is rising costs, mega fr- a focus on mega franchises, the kind of the rot of the middle class of the games industry. Yeah, And I just think it's kind of anti-competitive to see Microsoft shrug and say, we're literally throwing $75 billion at this company to get them into our portfolio. I, I do not, it is, while I can see in the individual terms, like how this could be good for say, cleaning up the toxic culture of Activision Blizzard or potentially bringing back a game like Warcraft or Starcraft, I think big picture, it really makes me worried for the next five, ten years of the games industry. Yeah, it's, Cat, it's the principle. Cat, go ahead. It, it's, it's the principle right there. Like, you, like you are now, we are now dependent on Phil Spencer to do all of this, correct? We are dependent on him to bring all these old games back. We are dependent on him to clean up Activision Blizzard. We are dependent on him to do all of these other things with all of these other companies that previously were independent. And while while on an individual basis you know, maybe, maybe he will make better decisions than would have been made otherwise. It is, I think Kat's point is that effectively we're dependent on, in the end, the buck stops with this one guy for s- how much of the industry at this point? I mean, what percentage of the industry does Microsoft sorry, now Activision own? Blizzard and Bethesda alone. I mean, those are two yeah. of the biggest publishers in the games industry. Yeah. And I think we're just in a better place if we have games like Call of Duty on as many platforms as possible. If we have games like Starfield, not as an Xbox exclusive, sorry. So, <laughs> but but here's here's what happens, and this is this is the old guy talking. Um, it's very cyclical, right? Like you, yes, you get all these big franchises being gobbled up, and you know, get all this consolidation, and then creative minds leave, right? Like a star designer at Rockstar leaves, the level designer of the Doom franchise leaves, and new studios are being founded, and usually what happens then is they create something new. They create a new brand, and some of our some of our favorite franchises today are not that old, right? Like think of something like, you know, a, a naughty dog or even Ghost of Tsushima, right? That, that is a new 
IP that hadn't been around for a long time. And I do think that we will see the return. Uh, we will see new studios come in with new brands and also Kat, you did see the return of the middle class. You've got the definition of triple B and THQ is back, right? So oh God. <laughs> Atari is around in some fashion, right? So Atari, these... the crypto scam. <laughs> I know. Some yeah. of these old brands Embracer's revive themselves. Embracer's acquiring everyone, including THQ. Right. So yeah. What's yeah. funny is that indies have become the middle class because the so-called triple A indie, right? Yeah. That's, that's, becoming, that's, that's the definition of the middle class. Yeah. I think ultimately and the scary thing is that we're not depending on Phil Spencer for these things. We're depending on unchecked capitalism to solve the problems caused by unchecked capitalism. Yeah. I would also add to the point you're making, Pear, sure, they'll break off and form their own studios, but they didn't – in order to form those studios, they are then off, very often dependent on funding from, again, the same like three guys at the top of everything in order to function. Because there there is kind of this, this cyclical thing happening, right, where like the middle – the middle class of the games industry, the sort of double A, triple A indie, whatever that is, hollows out. It, it disappears. Either those studios fall apart and go away or they get acquired by bigger companies and they disappear and then it builds back up again and then they disappear. And it's it's kind of this this wave that keeps going. But every time that cycle happens, the people at the top acquire more companies and get bigger and bigger and bigger and it just keeps happening. The, the market... The market hates stability and things always change. Like think of the streaming se sector with Netflix. Netflix was the one, the only one. And now if you're looking at Netflix's share in streaming, every year it's going down slightly because now there's HBO Max, Showtime, like, you know, Disney Plus, all of these classic companies are reinventing themselves as, as streamers. I mean, we talked earlier about there's, you know, PlayStation, Nintendo and Microsoft. But there's Google waiting in the wings. Maybe they'll get it right next time, right? Like they certainly have the pockets for it. There's Apple, and Apple is working on a VR headset and and making a bigger entry. And uh, and and obviously Amazon being being a big story. So maybe there'll be more big cats giving money, and then it'll get consolidated again. But I just yeah, you I, mentioned Netflix. Yeah. Netflix is making a play in the games industry as well. Mm -hmm. And That's right. yeah, I mean I think this is emblematic of a huge shift in the games industry as old players are gobbled up by the biggest fish and new players come in. But by and large, I think that consolidation under mega cores like Xbox or like Microsoft and Google, not great, honestly, no, of not. giving not these tech concerns so much power in everything not great. And it's not just the video game industry. No, it's like, look at the Madden franchise, right? Like unopposed, it it didn't soar. It, it stagnated and it became like a FIFA. They, these sports games became worse because 2K wasn't there to keep innovating and, and, and then in turn EA pushing to innovate. Um, no, that's that's absolutely true. Um, but I you look, I it's it's cyclical. There'll be there'll be new companies being for, formed and and really creative minds will never sit still and be happy to be a cog in the wheel at a big corporation. They're they're gonna want to be movers and shakers and you'll get some new games studios out of it. It's also like a it's a an overtly political question because like the Biden administration is breaking up are trying to break up Facebook, which is the right call. But also, there's almost no chance the Activision Microsoft thing is ever going to get looked at by the DOJ or no. you know FTC will look at it, but they'll like they'll wave it off. This things that like you were mentioning the Roosevelt, the ghost of Roosevelt coming back. Mm -hmm. They they had more political will to regulate companies back then for this sort of thing, which they don't now. Yeah. Well, 
there's a lot more that we could discuss. I mean, honestly, this could be an entire episode discussing the implications of trust busting and all of that. But let's talk about video games. Let's talk about what we've been playing. And Imran, let's start with you. What have you been playing? Uh, I think I mentioned at the top, I've been playing way too much Genshin Impact. I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV with Reb here, uh, where we try to do main story quest, and that game is just not co-op friendly at all. Where we are trying to go into main, like go alongside the main story quest, but we'll go to a thing, and then like even though we are both doing the same quest, fighting the same enemies, the game will go. Actually, you can't be in a party for this. We, we're going to give you a little cutscene, and then you guys have to break up the party, then reconvene the party afterwards, which is real nuts to me because that's not how I understand MMORPGs to work. It's a very <laughs> good game. I'm enjoying it a lot, but that like just let me stay in the party that's all i'm really asking for yeah you guys should play sea of thieves then <laughs> we could don't give me more games don't give me more like ongoing live service games i quit wow and then i got roped into this final fantasy 14 nonsense don't do this mm. yeah i stopped playing fifa because i was just like at a certain point it was a treadmill and i said to myself wait a minute i could be playing other games that are really good like nintendo games and bloodborne and so I stopped playing it. I, I want to highlight really quickly an indie game that I played over the weekend with some friends, Lovers and a Dangerous Space Time. It came Ooh. out in 2017. It's on Nintendo Switch. Delightful party game. So the premise is you're flying around in a spaceship. Everybody is controlling a different part of it. You have your gunners and you have your pilot and you have your shield operator. You can fire what we were calling the Yamato cannon <laughs> mm-hmm. with it. And your goal is to rescue little space buddies from the forces of anti-love. And it's a little bit like a EDM fever dream in a big old spaceship. It is delightful and intense and causes so much discussion as people are playing. And I love communication when everybody's getting together. The Omicron variant, of course, makes getting together with friends difficult. But in a happier time, a time that is more filled with love. I recommend checking out Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time, which is takes a concept that I really enjoy, flying around in a spaceship, and adds such a layer of fun and uh, just this unique vibe to it. It's really fun. It, it was a big hit uh, when it first came out um, in the in the Schneider household. We played it with uh, with four players. I have three kids, um, so it uh, yeah, it's it's just really clever. I love these. There was an era where we got a lot of these um, uh, uh, kind of uh, asymmetric co-op games, right? Where you had different roles for different people, and this one, this one is one of the best out there. It's just, it's so much fun. You get mad, but you also have just a ton of fun. Yeah, asymmetric co-op—that is a great way to describe it. And we've had those kinds of games in the past, but I think this might actually be the best realization of the concept of everybody's flying a spaceship together and operating different stations. Um, It's one part almost like twin stick shooter and arcade game and one part strategy game. It very smart. Uh, I'm really glad I finally got to play it. And a pair, what have you been playing? I mean, obviously, I'm still Forza thawing around and like still talking about live Forza. games. Wow. I'm curious to I'm curious to see how long it's going to capture me. Like, I I do the you know the the seasonal challenges, and I'm maxed out on this season. Like, I'm totally I'm totally hooked. Um, I love I love cars too. Um, and 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 so it, it's it, it's just beautiful. Anyway, on the Nintendo Switch, uh, I'm actually. <laughs> 
I don't know, almost random. I started Doki Doki Literature Club and I'm still not sure why. I think it's because um, Jose, like ages ago, Jose and I talked about it and he was playing it and he's like, he's like, yeah, dude, this game is weird, but you know, it's got this twist to it. And so I got curious and I saw it, I think it was up for sale. So I bought it and I started it and yeah, it's just uh, it's a a horny talky talky game right now. (laughs) So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Wait, do you not know? No, I don't know. I, I deliberately, no, I did. I, well, <laughs> I saw some of the content warnings and stuff, so mm. I didn't. I didn't spoil it for myself. Um, but I heard that there was a twist, so I, that that was the motivator to finally check it out. And it's it's definitely not my kind of game so far. Um, you know, high school dating games usually don't play that much of. Um, <laughs> but we'll see where it goes, and then we'll see if I um, if I like it. But then also, yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, Reb. Um, Please. Once once I get to that point, whatever it is, uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, a cooking simulator. Yeah. And then uh, Pick Cross 7, obviously I'm playing Pick Cross 7, same as Pick Cross 6, just with touchscreen. And then uh, Death Store, um, it, it's one of the yeah. games in my backlog. Um, you know, Reb, I know you recommended it, so I, I jumped on that one. It's, you know, it's like a, a, a mini Legend of Zelda game in a way. Um, uh, I wish it had a map. <laughs> That is my one yeah. piece of feedback. Um, I, I wish we had made a map for it for IGN, but it's a little late now. Uh, but maybe in the future we'll we'll do a little bit more support like that. But I dig Down it. I think it's really maps. cool. Yep. That's it. And Reb, how about you? Uh, I am currently playing a game I can't talk about until next week, so I'll see you then. Gee, I wonder what it is. Well, I don't know. <laughs> what games are coming out? Um, but in the the evening when I thought I was going to be getting a code for that game and did not get a code until the next day, I played about an hour mm. of Bowser's Fury, which I had not played before. Uh, I really like it so far. I have no idea when I'll be able to come back to it, given the scope of the thing I am currently playing that I can't talk about. But uh, I, I, I like it. It, it has vibes of mario sunshine which i am a diehard apologist for for no good reason uh but then it also feels a little bit like mario odyssey in in sort of the way that you find these little cat shines i love that everything is cats i i didn't realize how little information i actually had in my brain about this game because all these little things were surprising me like when like the the very first time you uh get the little cat bell and turn into the big lion thing. I had never seen that before and it was really exciting. And when Plessy shows up and I'm just like jumping around in the water and yeah, it's, it's just fun. It feels, it feels very Nintendo toy box to me, which I know is the theme we were talking about earlier. And I, I didn't realize how much I missed that because it's been, I don't know. I guess it's been a year or two since I've played a proper like Nintendo Wii toy box kind of game. Stick with it. I've I've really I loved I it, and it. I was kind of surprised how quickly it went. Like the discussion just died down, and I think it's because it was presented almost like the B side for this re-release of a of a really good other Mario game. Um, I just think it's such a cool experiment. They basically just did a more confined open world Mario Sunshine or Odyssey or Mario sixty four. I, I I think it's really really good. It's got so many clever little touches. The controls are killer, and it it looks beautiful too. I, the the kind of like the emerging Bowser kind of like mm-hmm. mega event stuff gets a little old, but it's but it's still a cool little element too. It, it has feels very, like I'm sorry, oh. it has been very funny watching Reb play because I'm I'm like you have a run button, you can use the run button. She's like, no, I'm going at a fast enough speed. I'm fine. I'm just trotting along. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. It feels like if if Mario Odyssey had a 
great at a, had a Breath of the Wild Great Plateau area. That's, that's it. What, yeah, that's what it feels like to me. I really I like it. I I don't know when I'm going to get back to it, but I want to try to oh, make man. time for it. Maybe in a couple All right, weeks. All right, let's wrap up with a question block. This one is from Brett Taranzo and keeping it with the theme of acquisitions. They want to know, will Microsoft's acquisition affect the indie scene? Switch has become the go-to for indies, but with Sony losing so many franchises, do you think they'll start featuring indies much more like the start of the PS4 <laughs> era and cut into Switch's dominance in that space? What's your take, Imran? I think Game Pass is probably the bigger thing because there's a big upfront payment for indies, which is, you know, you can put, like, you may make money elsewhere. Who knows? Maybe the Switch version would outsell it. But I think Game Pass is a better guarantee for a lot of indie developers who have spent years working on a thing and just need to be paid for it. Uh, I don't think, Switch has been doing very well in terms of indies because Nintendo's out there actually making those partnerships and the the notoriety of being featured in one of those indie worlds is hard to, like, put a price value on but i i don't think either one is going to completely take over the scene completely uh at least until for it like the only way i could see it being a big deal is if indies at some point technologically outpace the switch which is not like impossible there's games like neon white that look like they're really struggling on that system mm. but for the most part i think they're going to probably coexist fairly well for a while yeah i, I think that's a really good take I, every indie dev i talk talk to they love Steam and they love Switch, right? Like Switch, and so some of them after after not being able to sell big on on Steam, they actually get a second wind on Switch. And if they're lucky enough to be discovered on that platform, they can sell really really significant numbers. And so, I think it's a little bit more difficult. Um, and and I think there is an expectation with a handheld that the graphics don't have to look like Halo Infinite or mm -hmm. Uncharted or something like that. And so I think they they feel at home on the on the Switch much more. But yeah, you're, you're right, Imran. Like there are indie games are getting more sophisticated, and the engines um, that are powering them are getting more sophisticated and easier to work with. So there will be a point where some of the more notable ones will no longer run on the Switch until, of course, there's another Switch. See. I think that the Steam Deck is more interesting to watch on the indie front because, of course, so many of them come out on Steam well before they come out on Nintendo, and the Steam Deck really takes off. I think that will become a very popular venue to be able to play these indie games, and Nintendo will lose some of the appeal of being able to play them portably. Yep. See, I don't think... I, I've, I've talked to many indies in the last year or so, and I, I've gotten a different vibe that... The Switch is definitely it has it has sort of a presence for indies. I think like there there's a certain feeling of especially for certain kinds of indie games of having your game on Nintendo console, especially if you've been inspired by Nintendo like older Nintendo games. Mm -hmm. But unless you are one of those prestige indies that can get featured in an indie direct or a Nintendo direct, then your discoverability on Switch is terrible. Like there's it, it you're you're up there for new releases. And then that's kind of it. And Sony has similar problems. I've written about the problems with indie discoverability. Discoverability and is bad in general. It is bad Everywhere. in general. Every it, no, it's bad in general, but it is better on PC because you have because yeah. you have a little more control over it. You can control that. You can control things like sales on Steam. You can sort of control where your audience goes and how they get to your games a little bit better. Um, so PC is the ideal for everybody. But then on console, yeah, it is. 
I, I think Game Pass is sort of the easier thing for a lot of indies because you don't you don't need to be an ID at Xbox title to get a Game Pass deal. You don't need to be in the sort of prestige category of indies that make the big marketing presentations. You can if you have it, it's it's not it's not a guarantee that you'll be able to cut that kind of deal, but it is easier to get that sort of guarantee up front. And so, yeah, for console platforms, I've my vibe is that. Xbox has been better for indies for about a year, maybe a little bit longer, just because of the discoverability problem growing and growing on the Switch. Whereas when it first came out, it was a great place for indies because there were just no games. And so it was easy to find your game. Um, I, I, this, this space shifts constantly because whichever platform feels that they are falling behind in whatever area they feel they're falling behind in tends to court indies better because they need that software bump. They need to have more games that look really good and nice to make themselves look better. Uh, so that, that's kind of why PlayStation and Xbox have sort of changed hands over the years on who, who was friendlier towards indies. Nintendo just kind of occupies a space between them all the time. I don't know that this is going to hurt them directly. I don't even think the Steam Deck's honestly going to... The Switch is going to get the indies that it's going to get, whether there's a Steam Deck or a Game Pass or not, because it's going to cut deals with a handful of prestige indies to put in its little Nindy showcases and we'll love those and they'll be great and everybody else will find their way, I guess. Brett, thank you so much for the question and that is all the time we have left for this week's Nintendo Voice Chat Follow us on Twitter at NVC Podcast. Submit your question block questions on the NVC Facebook group. Thanks to our guest, Imran Khan, as well as Kate on the ones and twos, and Logan behind the scenes. Most of all, thanks to all of you hanging out with us. And remember, NBC is the only place you can get the thing.